I'm Howard Chang, a professor in the Stanford University in California and investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Today, I'll be talking to you in three-part talks about epigenomics and long non-coding RNAs. Epigenetics is a very hot topic today. The word literally means above the genes. And you can remember the catchphrase that your DNA is not your destiny. And a very good example of this is that nearly every cell in your body has the same DNA. Yet your skin cell is not the same as your muscle cell or your brain cell. And that is because these cells have choices. Choices about which genes to turn on and off. And this comprehensive study of these gene regulatory events is the modern study of epigenomics. Literally, we can think about epigenomics as studying the living genome. This field has evolved so that we can now directly measure these activities, but it has important implications because it has the dynamics of the interaction between nature and nurture, what you're born with, and the impact of your environment. As such, this may have important implications for your personalized health, for example, in clinical applications and also monitoring health states. Here's another potentially useful analogy to think about the relationship between your DNA, your genome, your epigenome, and the involvement in potential disease states. We can imagine that your genes are like this template information, like this image, and the epigenome as the lens through which the information is projected to show this beautiful image. With aging and or with disease, this template gets degraded, and the lens may become cloudy. So this image is now blurred. The promise of epigenetics is that perhaps we can actually fix the situation. Even if the genome information is still somewhat degraded, the lens, the epigenome through which this information projects, can be corrected. And in such a way, like the glasses I'm wearing, to actually restore this image and basically restore uh, the phenotype we associate with a healthful state. That is the conceptual promise. Another reason for the excitement for epigenomics is because the technology is really at an inflection point. In every field, technologies go through different phases of discovery, detection, and systematic decoding. In the field of genomics, the hardware of the DNA in our cells, we discovered the structure of DNA in the 1950s. The first technology to detect or sequence uh, DNA occurred in the 70s, but it's only in the last decade or so that we have really next-generation sequencing technology to make routine genome sequencing a possibility. Epigenomics is also going through a related kind of uh, revolution. And we can think about the epigenomics now as the counterpart, the software programming of our cells. So the first chemical bars associated with uh, epigenetic memory were discovered in the 50s. Some of the first methods to detect uh, these uh, marks in a laboratory setting were developed in the 80s. And I'll be telling you about some new technology that developed, were developed in the last decade that really sped up the capacity to systematically decode this epigenomic information. Let's zoom in to the specific features in the genome that we're talking about. When we think about genes, specifically disease-associated genes, we have to remember that each of these genes are associated with switches, DNA regulatory elements that decide when and where 
this gene turns on and off. These DNA elements are the binding sites for transacting protein transcription factors or regulatory RNAs. The picture in the human genome actually look more like the bottom, where only just 2% of the information is protein coding. And the vast amount of the real estate, 98%, is actually part of this regulatory DNA. We also know that most of the human variants associated with disease reside in this non-coding space. So systematic work over the last several decades by many investigators have found that uh, all this DNA is packed into chromatin. And I'll refer you to the iBiology talk by David Alice, which goes into great depth about these different chemical marks. But the end conclusion is really that each part of the gene has characteristic chemical and physical features on chromatin, and that these features reflect the current activity and the future trajectory of the genes. And we can... And the epigenomic technologies I'm talking about basically uh, is the systematic mapping of these chromatin features across the genome. So this cartoon shows the fact that if there's a a protein-coding gene here, that there'll be promoters. That's where the gene starts. There are DNA elements, like enhancers, that activate this gene in specific cell types. Uh, There are additional DNA elements that might prevent this gene from being activated in a different situation. And there are also, for example, insulators, things that basically break up genomes into neighborhoods of control. And this interaction uh, would have to occur, uh, for example, through long-range DNA looping, chromosome looping. A very fundamental feature of these uh, activities is that the DNA has to be accessed. It has to be physically touching the regulatory machinery uh, for this regulation to happen. And that is a, a fundamental feature that we can exploit. Now, in every human cell, two meters of DNA is packed into a 10-micron nucleus. Therefore, most of your DNA is highly compacted, all wound up, and not accessible, except for the active DNA elements that your cell is uh, actually using and reading. And so simply finding out where these accessible elements are located can give us a lot of information about the software program that your cell is running. A few years ago, my colleague, Will Greenleaf, and I at Stanford invented a technology called Assay of Transposase Accessible Chromatin, or ATAC-seq for short. It uses an enzyme called TN5 transposase, which copies and pastes DNA. It's derived from a bacteriophage. Uh, We already load up this enzyme with sequences that can go onto our sequencing machine. When this enzyme tries to copy and paste into eukaryotic chromatin. It can only paste into the open chromatin sites. And so, therefore, in a single step, you selectively and covalently tag the genome at the accessible sites. That then allows us to amplify and sequence these elements. So this uh, very elegant, simple uh, sort of strategy led to a million-fold improvement in the sensitivity and a hundredfold improvement in the speed of mapping the regulatory DNA, the epigenome, uh, in human cells. Here's an example of what the data will look like. On the x-axis, these are the locations of genes. And the height of these peaks indicates a level of accessibility. The taller the peak, the more accessible it is. The first track, shown in blue, was the standard, prior gold standard technology called DNA's hypersensitivity, and it used 10 million cells. The second row in green is the first version of the TAC-seq technology, 
which only used 50,000 cells. And the third row was the ultimate resolution that we achieved, which was actually single-cell ataxic. This is several hundred single cells summed together. You can see that the patterns look very similar uh, across uh, these applications. However, now with the single-cell information, you can zoom in. And now every row is a single cell. There are 254 single cells going down this way. And at every position here, at every... Uh, you basically see either zero, one, or two reads because human cells are deployed. And therefore, this kind of analog signal can turn into digital information. When we see these individual peaks, we, of course, want to know what are the factors that are acting on these individual gene switches. And there's another very interesting feature of the attack-seek signal that we can exploit. We learn that many times... At the summit of every peak, there's an approximately 8 to 10 basis of a dip. And this is called a footprint. Okay, so this is an example of an ataxic signal. And this is exactly the binding site of a DNA binding factor on uh, to DNA. So the idea is that we're essentially spray-painting the genome with our ataxic enzyme. And if a, if, a, if a protein is sitting on the DNA, you can spray-paint to the left of it or to the right of it, but not on top of it. And so if I were putting my hand in front of a wall and I spray painted, when I move my hand away, you'll see a shadow. It shows that an object was there. That is the kind of similar principle. And so you can see that if we directly retrieve this particular factor called CTCF, this is the location where the CTCF is sitting, and the footprint of the CTCF on a taxi data looks very similar. Okay. So because we naturally know the binding preference of hundreds of factors across the genome, we can actually look across the genome and ask, where do we see this kind of footprint, and infer the binding locations. So, for example, on the, in this uh, map here, uh, every, co- every row is an instance of the CTCF binding site in the genome. This is the center of, of, the, of the sequence that it's being bound to. We can see that only these sites up here have this kind of footprint pattern, and these ones at the bottom do not. If we directly retrieve CTCF by a different technology, we can see the same answer that these top ones are bound and the bottom ones are not bound, okay? And so because, again, that we know the binding sequence or the preference of hundreds of factors uh, in that bound to DNA, we can actually learn the binding locations of these factors all at once in an allele-specific fashion. Now that we have this powerful technology, we can think about what we can learn from this map, this epigenomic map of individual cells. And by analogy, we were really quite inspired by the kind of maps, digital maps, that we all use in our daily lives or navigation. Uh, These digital maps represent the real world in different layers, including uh, the lay of the land, the different uh, uh, businesses, different streets, where your friends are. And each of these layers of the map makes this map more useful. So we also imagine that by analogy, that if we build up a personal snapshot of gene regulation, the epigenome of the regulum, we want to learn from this map different cell types, different cell states, the tissue microenvironment, the cell lineages, the effects of perturbations or drugs, connect them all together through computation, and to kind of then make maximal use of this uh, personal regulum information. 
And I'll show you some examples how we can extract this kind of information from uh, the epigenomic map. An important concept is that the epigenome encodes information of cell type identity. Here on this map, I'm showing you six tracks, six different cell types from the blood, starting from the hematopoietic stem cell, the HSC, to cells that make different lineages, myeloid cells, white cells, red, uh, MEP, which makes red cells, and specific kinds of immune cells, CD8 T cells and NK cells. On the right, you can see that for this particular gene, TET2, the messenger RNA level varies by less than twofold across these different cell types. So you might think that TET2 is not a very good marker for different cell type identities. But if you look at the chromatin landscape, now you see a completely different picture, which is shown on the left. So you can see that the TET2 promoter, it's accessible in all these different cell types. But then you see that progenitor cells have one set of accessible elements, and further elements distinguish, let's say, uh, lymphoid cells and specific kinds of cells, such as CD8 cells and NK cells. So the message here is that each of these uh, cell types, they're making the same, turning on the same gene, making the same RNA. But they're doing it with different gene switches. And these switches then tell us the identity of cells that are involved. This particular concept can be particularly powerful when we think about the problem of cancer. Cancer cells are individually different. And this has been long known. On the left is a play from a, a paper by Verkow back in 1847. He was drawing images uh, that he saw under the microscope. And you can see that individual cells are not all identical. On the right-hand side is a more modern image from a review, which raises the concept that tumor cells can go through this kind of uh, epigenomic or chromatin changes, and that changes their behavior. We use our technology and teamed up with colleagues at Stanford University to study human leukemias, acute myeloid leukemia. In this particular disease, which is a cancer of the blood cells, we know that the hematopoietic stem cell, the HSC, that gives rise to all the other cells in the blood, suffers a series of mutations. The first mutation can create something called a, uh, a PHSC. And further mutations causes a cell, shown in yellow here, the leukemic stem cell, that can now propagate the disease. There's still a minority of cells in the blood. The vast majority of cells are these blast cells, uh, which is colored red here. We're able to isolate all the different cell types from leukemic patients and show that, in fact, they're also, in parallel to the genetic changes, there's corresponding systematic changes to the epigenome uh, as these cancer cells progress uh, through these different uh, stem cell fates. We can also answer some important questions. We know that in certain cancers and leukemias, that the leukemic cells will show features or markers of different kinds of normal cell parts, cell types. And so this is a, a confusing situation. People are not sure whether it's because there are two kinds of cells running around the leukemia, or is it that really there's one cell running two programs? And so we use our single-cell technology, single-cell attack-seq, to examine uh, a leukemic patient, in this case, a patient's uh, leukemic stem cells. So on the graph on the right here, uh, each dot shows either individual cells or particular cell type. And this two-dimensional plot here indicates cell relationship by distance. 
the more related the cells are, the closer they're together. And if they're far apart, that means they're quite different. But what we see is that these purple cells, the individual cells from the cancer patients, they do not map to any of the known cell types. They map in between them. And that really indicates that it's a single cell running two different programs, a concept called lineage infidelity. It also further turns out that the more that these cancer stem cells are running the program, the normal hematopoietic stem cell, the HSC, the more they're able to copy themselves and renew themselves. And that, in that case of cancer, is a bad situation. We found that, in fact, that those uh, leukemic stem cells with a high sort of PHSC potential, uh, they're much more likely to cause death, uh, unfortunately, for the patients, whereas those cells with a low uh, PHC uh, content uh, have a much better outcome. And so, therefore, we can see that even this epigenomic information has potential prognostic information. We were able to extend these concepts into also solid cancers. The Cancer Genome Atlas uh, has been a major effort for the cancer community over the last decade. And many investigators have systematically collected uh, nearly 10,000 tumor samples and sequenced their genome, sequenced their RNA. But until very recently, we didn't have any, any information on the uh, epigenome landscape. We teamed up uh, with the TCGA group and we're able to use a taxi technology to map the chromatin landscape in 23 human cancer types, which are shown here on the right. And these span some of the most common and deadly human cancers, including glioblastoma, lung cancer, breast cancer, uh, colon cancer, and so on and so forth. We study 410 tumors, and we discover uh, over half a million DNA elements that are active in these diverse cancer types. What is very intriguing is that we found that nearly half of these elements are not active uh, in our surveys of normal tissues. They're only activated in the context, in the pathology of cancer. We can learn several in- really intriguing uh, results. Geneticists have long studied different families looking at different risks of cancer. And the vast majority of these uh, sort of risks associated with cancer are actually falling into the non-coding elements. And so it's a a mystery as to how they might work. So on the right is an image coming from the epigenome mapping. Again, uh, genes are on the x-axis, and the height on the y-axis indicates accessibility. On the top, in orange, I'm showing you five examples of colon cancer. On the bottom, uh, five examples of kidney cancer. This gene being shown here is called MYC. It's a very important and powerful oncogene. And nearly all the cancers would turn on MYC. But the point I want to make is that the colon cancers turn on MYC using different elements, shown more to the left side, the 5 prime end of the locus. And the kidney cancers turn on MYC with a different set of elements, more to the 3 prime end of the locus. So again, different switches, even for a common oncogene across different cancers. The second important point is that one of these switches that's turned on in colon cancer is precisely the location for colon cancer predisposition. It's only active in colon cancer. And conversely, an element that's associated with kidney cancer predisposition is actually only, again, only turned on in uh, kidney cancer. Okay? So this epigenome mapping then provided us, at least, I think, a biochemical 
hypothesis and explanation for uh, these risk elements associated with cancer predisposition. We also learned that beyond inherited risk, we can also explain somatic mutations. Those are acquired uh, in the body uh, in the course of cancer. This is a map looking at a particular locus uh, in uh, uh, different kinds of bladder cancers and kidney cancers. And we see that all these cancers have the same landscape, except this one that all of a sudden gains this very strong uh, accessible uh, element, uh, activity, uh, in this locus. And what we discover there is that if you look at the attack-seek data, all this accessibility comes from a mutated element. And so the normal sequence is shown at the bottom of this graph here, okay? And the mutated sequence has changed a single base, this letter in T, uh, from C to T. And what we realize here is that the cancer is essentially hacking the password of the genome. This sequence shown at the top here is the perfect binding site for a particular transcription factor called NKX. And when the cancer shell changes that C to a T, it now has the perfect binding site again for NKX, and therefore it gains its accessibility because the machine starts reading that part of the genome and turning on the gene. We further found that the gene linked to this element is called FGD4. When FGD4 level is quite high, this is actually associated with a very strong uh, risk, again, of, uh, of death. Uh, and uh, therefore, this is the kind of uh, information that would be quite valid to know. We can therefore use the epigenome information to understand both inherited and acquired risk of cancer. This technology has uh, continued to undergo evolution. And a very important recent advance is the increase in the scale of mapping single-cell chromatin accessibility. This is using a microfluid technology that can parse individual nuclei from cells into nanoliter-sized drops. Into these droplets, then, we combine them with barcodes. So these are basic little beads that contain DNA sequences. Each bead contains a different sequence, and that's the barcode. And so when individual nucleus meets an individual barcode, we can transfer the information from the barcode onto the nucleus. And that says that all the molecules in that little drop came from the same cell. Once we have tagged all these uh, individual drops, we can then break the drops and then sequence all the uh, uh, molecules together. Uh, but then we retain information that they came originally from different cells. So this technology allowed us to scale up the, the, the throughput of single-cell epigenomics from uh, let's say, several hundred cells uh, per uh, assay to not tens of thousands of cells, or perhaps even more, uh, in a single experiment. We were able to recently uh, team up with colleagues at Stanford University to use this technology to look at a very important aspect of cancer treatment called cancer immunotherapy. Uh, the poster trial of cancer immunotherapy is an antibody called uh, PD-1. Uh, it's called checkpoint blockade because it releases the breaks that are on the immune system for fighting against cancer. And so in this kind of work, people are really interested in what kind of immune cells are coming in to fight cancer and how do they change in the progress of cancer treatment. Uh, and the challenges are that, again, uh, we're talking about clinical material biopsies from patients, so they're tiny. Uh, 
And you have one shot to get it right, uh, and because you can't just go back and, and keep asking the person to do surgery. So in the context of a clinical trial uh, for a kind of cancer called basal cell carcinoma, we're able to serially biopsy the same tumor before, during, and after treatment, and then subject them to this very powerful single-cell epigenome analysis. So in this map, uh, called a U-map, again, it's a two-dimensional plot that represents uh, this uh, cell information. Uh, Again, related cells are more clustered together, Distant cells are separated apart, and there are nearly 30,000 single tumor-infiltrating T-cells uh, in this map that we have analyzed. Uh, they've been color-coded based on different classes of cells, and the only point I want to make here is that this tumor microenvironment is really a world into itself. It's really diverse, and there are all different kinds of cells that you would have missed if you just average everything together into a gamish. Okay. What we can further learn is that these cells are related. On the left, I'm showing you basic trajectories that we've mapped out based on the single-cell ataxy data of the cells uh, as they develop. So from naive CDA cells into effector T cells, memory cells, or exhausted cells, and also naive CD4 cells into these CD4 TFH cells. But what we learn on the right is that we can compare the same patients before and after checkpoint blockade and ask what populations change. And then what really emerges is that there's two populations, the exhausted T cells, CDA cells, and the CD4-positive TFA cells, these two arms going down. And this is what expands and we think are very important uh, for cancer immunotherapy. We've been talking about individual DNA elements and how we can use that to learn about the epigenome. An equally important challenge is linking these DNA elements to their target genes. And this cartoon kind of illustrates part of the problem. We know that the gene regulatory landscape is interweaved. A DNA element can actually control a gene that's actually quite far away from itself. There might be several genes in between. And therefore, simply finding out an element's active is not enough to say which nearby gene is actually being controlled. And so this is a question you can phrase as the last mile of human genetics. What is my target gene? If we've gone through, let's say, these large-scale studies, find DNA variants that are associated with disease, now we want to know what are the genes under control that might be changed. And so uh, this really needs a, a different aspect of epigenome technology, looking into DNA folding and how those DNA elements touch their target genes. And so a technology that was developed that we think is quite useful is a method that uh, we call the enhancer connector. The idea is that we can take cells, cross-link them uh, in their native nucleus to preserve the three-dimensional contacts. We can then retrieve the active enhancers based on one of these chemical marks that I talked about in the beginning. In this case, a histone modification called histone H3 lysine-27 acetylation. And then when you sequence these contacts, what you should get is a map like this, where we can see individual DNA elements, in this case, for example, or causal variant for a disease. And then it's target genes, in this case, gene D and gene A, but not the nearest gene, which is gene B. I should mention that, by default, uh, in the genetics literature, people oftentimes report these disease gene associations just based on the nearest gene on the linear genome. 
And this information may or may not be correct. So it's really a shame that we've done all this work, but maybe we haven't gotten the very precise information that we need. So this uh, enhancer connectome method uh, actually proved to be quite powerful. It was a 10,000-fold improvement in the sensitivity. We needed only 50,000 cells instead of uh, millions or tens of millions of cells. And there's also a 10-fold improvement in the sequencing depth that one needs to get precise information. Here's an example of looking at a kind of rather rare blood cell, Th17 cells, uh, from a human blood, from an individual standard blood draw. We can see uh, these kind of uh, sort of checker uh, uh, maps relate long-range contacts in DNA. Uh, it's the same uh, genome on the X and the Y axis, and therefore anything that's off-diagonal, such as shown here, uh, reflects over long-range contacts. And this map just showed that we can actually see this kind of context from 500 kilobase resolution all the way down to a kilobase resolution. This kind of mapping from primer human cells is important and needed this technology. Some of the rare cells we analyzed, uh, we calculated, uh, using the prior technology, would need about four liters of blood. Uh, just so everybody is on the same page, a, an adult human has five liters of blood. So taking out four liters is not something that I would recommend. Okay, so it literally would not be doable uh, without this kind of technology. Okay, so let's just show first uh, check that the information is accurate. And so we're looking now again at uh, this very powerful MIC oncogene, and uh, this is something called a virtual 4C view. We have an anchor point, which is usually shown by a dotted line, and that's the point that, in the genome that we're looking from. Each of these peaks, then, would be an active enhancer that is touching uh, this viewpoint. And the taller peak, that means there's stronger interaction or it's a stronger enhancer, or a combination of both. And so this viewpoint told us that in this particular cell type we're studying, this MIC gene is being contacted and turned on by these peaks, these five peaks that are shown here. So how do we know that is correct? It turns out that a recent study by Falco et al. and colleagues, they actually went in and systematically tried to block every piece of DNA uh, in this entire interval, okay? whether it's known to be active or not. And they found five elements shown on the bottom here okay, in, in red hatch marks, and they exactly line up with the locations that were identified by this uh, enhancer connectome study, showing that this information is actually accurate. Uh, now that we know that information is perhaps useful, we can think about applying it for solving questions in human genetics. For example, in this map of immune cells, T cells, we know that there are DNA elements been associated by genome-wide association studies with diseases like type 1 diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis. So what is the target gene? The nearest gene is this gene at the bottom shown in the green called SMIM20. It's not a gene that has really any known relationship to immunology. But in this enhancer connectome map, we discover that if you start from the viewpoint of this, uh, these uh, disease-associated DNA element, that the true target genes are actually this gene, RBPJ, which is very important for T-cell development, and a second gene called STEM2, which is a calcium channel that's involved in T-cell activation. And that makes much more sense. We can also verify that, uh, the, that these controls are really happening. This is using a version of the CRISPR technology that we use a dead Cas9 to bring in a silencing protein. And this shows that if we 
target RPPJ promoter, we can silence this or lower its expression. And similar, if we target that disease-associated element that was predicted to contact RPPJ, we also have an e- equivalently powerful effect in lowering its expression. Uh, so it shows that, in fact, this element, disease-associated element, is controlling that target gene. We can expand that concept and ask systematically for all these DNA-associated elements uh, in, let's say, autoimmune disease. What are the true target genes? Is it really the nearest gene that's been reported in literature, or could it be something else? And in fact, we found that across either all autoimmune diseases or specific well-known diseases like Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, lupus, or type 1 diabetes, that there's nearly a fourfold expansion of the protein targets, or the uh, genes encoding protein targets, uh, uh, by a fourfold. Okay, so a really substantial expansion of our understanding of uh, these diverse disease types. And finally, I want to talk to you about ways of systematically now testing uh, these uh, sort of nominated uh, gene epigenome connections and regulation. And that involves combining epigenome reading with epigenome writing. And this is a method uh, that we call PerturbAttack. It's a single-cell CRISPR screen for epigenomic phenotypes. The current method for doing uh, sort of large-scale CRISPR screens uh, involves perturbing a large population of cells, uh, each, for example, getting a different CRISPR guide to silence or knock out a different gene. We then impose some sort of selection, for example, cell growth or some sort of reporter gene, and we basically pull out a very small subset of cells that met our criteria. We then uh, sequence the CRISPR guides and see which ones are enriched, which ones have been lost, and we essentially know what's been enriched. So this is something... uh, And uh, so so we have these uh, hits, but everything else that got perturbed but didn't sort of pass our selection gets lost. Okay? There are many phenotypes that don't manifest themselves as cell growth or reporter gene readout. And so the concept of the perturb attack is that we want to, again, perturb cells, lots and lots of different combinations. But for every single cell, we're going to capture that cell. We're going to sequence the guide RNA and also read out its epigenome landscape by attack-seq. Okay? And this really means that we're doing multi-omics. We're recording two kinds, two modes of, of information, the chromatin and RNA, to make this possible. And so this was accomplished uh, using a microfluidic platform where we can capture the single cells and then in different chambers first perform a seq, then capture the RNA, barcode the molecules from the same well, and so we can then map the single cell seq to the single cell RNA information. And the graphs on the bottom show that this technology is actually working. If we introduce a guide RNA, for example, to this gene SP1, we see a loss of accessibility at XP1. And if you look genome-wide, the targets of SP1 are also uh, being impacted. We use this technology to perturb, uh, actually make lots of different perturbations, uh, either singly or in combination. So here, uh, every uh, row is a different perturbation. And this is a recording of what kind of perturbations have been made. Then we can see that, in fact, there are DNA regulatory elements that get changed that are different with each perturbation. And we can then show on the third column what kind of factors are most enriched at the sites that have been perturbed. And the results, we think, make a lot of sense. 
If you could perturb uh, this factor called EZH2, silence it, this is an enzyme that writes, uh, it's a, a histomark called K27, uh, H3K27 trimethylation and associated with gene silencing. So if you get rid of EZH2, the sites that previously had K27 trimethylation are most affected, and they're all upregulated. Remove the silencer, the targets get activated. If we target a transcription factor called SP1, okay, again, uh, this is a factor that's involved in activating genes. So the most affected uh, elements are those that contain uh, SP1 sites, and you lose the activator, so the target genes go down. So they're on the left side of this graph. And finally, at the bottom, uh, this is a uh, targeting uh, a long-coding RNA called EBER2. And prior work has shown that it interacts with a factor called PAX5. And indeed, uh, PAX5 is one of the most affected uh, class of elements uh, in this particular screen. We wanted to use this kind of technology to look again at the disease-associated risk uh, in, the, in the genome. And we know that there are elements that are affected. I showed you how we can find them, find their target genes. But what we want to know now is that what do we have to do to affect these switches, to turn them all on or off at the same time? Okay? And so this technology, the strategy we use then is to basically identify stem autoimmune diseases, alter these regulators in trance, and ask which of these combinations of regulators can most affect those disease-associated elements and their nearby contacts, which we identify using enhancer connectome. And so this is such a map. It's a very busy slide. So every column is a different disease, and we're looking at the DNA elements that are associated with that disease. Every row is a different perturbation. Uh, either we're basically silencing different transcription factors, either singly or in combination. And we want to ask which of these factors uh, have the most uh, impact selectively on the disease-associated elements. And then the, uh, the, the color code indicates the level of impact. And just as an example for this particular disease called lupus, what we identify is that among these factors that we examine, this particular factor, NFKB1, encoding NF-kappa-B, the P50 subunit, uh, has a, a strong impact. And if we allow to do a combinatorial studies, a second factor shows up called RAO-A. RAO-A turns out to encode the P65 subunit NF-kappa-B, and these two subunits actually work together. Okay, so this unbiased screen told us that this heterodimeric complex was perhaps very important uh, in this particular disease uh, as a transacting regulator affecting these thousands of switches across a genome, and that fits with a lot of known biology. So in summary, I've told you about sort of the progress in the, uh, understanding the epigenome. Uh, this is an exciting time where we really have a personal GPS for navigating the gene regulation landscape. The concept is that we have technologies now to go quickly from individual patients or their even rare clinical specimens through technology to find the DNA switches that control when and where these genes turn on and off, and that might put us in position to develop custom therapeutic strategies.